this is something of a, a, a comeback for me, uh, having been off work for the last nine weeks with, uh, first of all, problem with my back, then surgery on my back, and then uh, a period of recovery, uh, during which time I was very careful. So here I am back again. I, I was thinking about it. This is probably the longest period of time I've gone without preaching for uh, 20 years. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, you're in for a a lot this morning. If you have a Bible with you, perhaps you could grab it and turn to the book of Habakkuk. While you're finding it, here's what I want to promise you right up front. If at some point in your life you've experienced hurt, loss, pain, or disappointment, if you've experienced any of that, I think a lot of what I'll to be saying today will in some way resonate with you. Also reassured that God's already been speaking to us along the lines of what I want to unpack in a little more detail this morning. But before we get into it, I just need to remind you where we've got up to in the story of Habakkuk, because it has been a few months since we last looked at it. Basically, if you have a memory on you, Habakkuk has some problems with how God is running things. Anyone here ever had any problems with God? Don't need to, some people brave enough to put their hands up. I think probably we all do at times. I mean, if you can watch the news most nights and, and you're not thinking, God, you could have stopped that. God, why didn't you do something about that? God, what on earth are you doing? Then there's something wrong and, uh, and you've tuned something down in you, you've turned something off in your mind. So I think probably like all of us at times, Habakkuk has some questions for God. He has some problems with God. He doesn't like the fact that Judah, God's chosen people, God's covenant people, is worshipping idols. So Habakkuk complains to God. He says, God, why are you letting them do this? Why are you letting them get away with this? God, why are you letting them worship these idols? Why don't you do something about these people who are in rebellion against you? You remember God's response? Oh, I'm doing something all right. I'm sending the Babylonians right now, and I'm going to discipline my people for their rebellion. And that kind of freaks Habakkuk out because he says, well, the Babylonians are even worse than we are. They're even more wicked than we are. Why in the world would you use people who are more wicked than us to discipline people less wicked than them? Surely, God, you're not going to do that. There's no way that that's going to happen. And then God slowly begins to unpack to Habakkuk. Look, you don't even know what's going on immediately around you right now. You don't know what's happening directly behind you right now. You don't know what's going on in other parts of your country. You don't know what's going on with the Babylonians. You're you're limited in how you can see and what you can see. And then God goes on to underline the truth. He says, but I'm not limited like that. In fact, I'm beyond time. I exist outside of the constraints of time. Tomorrow isn't merely something I know about. 
it's a place where I already am. I already inhabit your tomorrows. He begins to explain to Habakkuk just how massive and beyond our understanding and comprehension he really is. And then from there, I guess you get this question forming that begins to confuse all of us at times. If God is infinite, if God is sovereign, he's in control of everything, if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and can do whatever he pleases, then what do we do with pain and suffering and loss and hurt? How do we explain the fact that God is good and He's in control over everything while all of those other things not only exist but very often encroach on our own personal lives? And if you remember last time, we saw how the Bible says at the end of the day we'll have one of two reactions to all of this. First reaction is to reject God and just go it alone. We think that if it was just done our way, if that wouldn't have happened, if we'd have done this instead of God doing that, then things would have worked out well for us. It's like in our pride, at times we think we know better than God and we end up on a trajectory away from God. Second reaction is just to humbly accept our limitations and even in the midst of difficulty, still look to God and cling on to Him. In the words of Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. That means we don't always have an answer for the why, but we trust that even in the darkest of days, God is still good. He is still loving. He is still at work to redeem and reconcile all things to Himself. So the righteous live by faith in the face of tragedy. We live by faith in the face of loss. We live by faith in the face of devastation and despair and delay. And on and on we could go here. We, we, we live by faith, which means that we can't always explain it. We just know that God is still good and that He can still accomplish something good even in the midst of all the wreckage we see around us. We know He's not always the source of the pain and the loss and the devastation and the despair, but that He can still use all of that stuff to serve His good and perfect purposes. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. Finally, we'll get into Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. Just to explain, up until this point in the book, God has been addressing Habakkuk and the people of Judah. Remember, they're His own special people, His chosen people, His covenant people. He hasn't yet said anything to the Babylonians except that He's going to use their wickedness to in some way discipline his own people. So now he's going to turn his attention to the Babylonians. Starting in the middle of verse 5, this is what he says. Because he, that's Babylon, 
is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations, takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey, because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will now plunder you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Here's what God's doing. He's already said to Judah, his own people, I'm going to discipline you with the Babylonians. And now he's turning his attention to the Babylonians and he's saying, woe to you. So now it's a little different. Now it's not discipline, it's wrath, it's judgment. Now it's really very, very important that you see the difference here and we're going to be unpacking this for the rest of this morning. Judah, God's own people, get discipline, but the Babylonians get wrath. Woe to you! Why? Because you've used and abused people, and the remnant of that people who are still here are going to rise up and overthrow you, and the terror that you have inflicted on them, they will now inflict on you. Tell me, we don't see this constantly in human history. Tell me, we don't see people getting fed up with oppressive, violent regimes and deciding to group together and overthrow them. This has happened throughout history and it's what God says is going to happen to the Babylonians here for their arrogance. Verse 9, woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. In other words, Not only have the Babylonians persecuted, beaten up, conquered other people, but now they're living in wealth while others are crushed and hard-pressed. And God is promising here that on the day of woe, on the day of judgment, the very walls they're hiding behind will cry out their guilt. Verse 12, woe to him, who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Even in the midst of that garden that's overgrown and tangled, there is a shoot coming. Even in the midst of 
that dark situation, there is a flicker of light. Even uh, beneath the eggshell, there is something coming forth. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wine skin, skin till they are drunk, so that he can then gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace will cover your glory. Now again, just need to explain some stuff here. This idea of a cup that is referred to in this passage, is very much symbolic. It's a picture of the wrath or the judgment of God towards man's rebellion against him. So if you remember, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, shortly before his trial and his crucifixion, he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. He's saying, Father, let your wrath pass from me. Let the judgment that is to be poured out on all flesh and is going to be channeled onto me as I hang on the cross, as I bear your wrath and the punishment and the judgment that is deserved by the world for their sin. Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. And yet Jesus still got to the place of willingly choosing to go through with it. There was no other way. What God says to the Babylonians here is, the cup is certainly coming your way. Although I am using you as an instrument to discipline my people, my wrath will still burn against your rebellion towards me. Let's keep reading, verse 17. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Now again, let's take a pause for a moment to talk about this because we live in a very tolerant society. So the idea here that God could have wrath, that God could feel judgment towards sin doesn't sit well with us. We don't like this kind of a message. We'd rather these parts of the Bible weren't really there. We want to pick and choose the aspects of God's character that we're comfortable with. And so, based on nothing but their own speculation, their own wishful thinking, people will say, no, God is love. And if God is love, there is no way he could do these things. God is a forgiving God. And so I just can't believe that he would do something like this. So what ends up happening is God, instead of being personal, becomes some sort of distant figment of our imagination. Instead of knowing God intimately for ourselves, we've created our own version, our own caricature, our own make-believe version of Him. And as a result, sin ends up carrying no personal weight to it at all. 
It's no longer rebellion against the creator God of the universe. It's simply breaking a bunch of pointless rules, like, why is God getting so frustrated that I'm lying? Why does God get so mad about me sleeping with my girlfriend? I mean, I've never done anything really bad. It's just small stuff I do. Why would God get frustrated with that? Why would God get so upset about this? It's like people think God shouldn't care what we get up to. But that's not the way I see it. I think if God created us, to enjoy relationship with Him, then our choosing to run off and ignore Him would be like the biggest slap in the face imaginable. I think a personal God would find it extremely painful. I mean, if you have ever been cheated on, you will know that forgiveness isn't easy. In effect, it involves taking on yourself all of the pain and the evil that the other person has committed against you and absorbing it somehow into yourself so there's none left to spill out in vengeance or violence or bitterness. Personal betrayals don't just disappear. The pain has to be borne by someone, either by the betrayer or the one betrayed. Listen, it is only because we have stopped thinking of God as someone with whom we have a personal relationship that I think the idea of Him being offended at our rebellion against Him just seems wrong to us. So we don't fathom that God could be angry because he's not personalized. He's something to be studied, not someone to be known and worshipped and loved and adored and enjoyed and pursued. So, you have God here clearly articulating that there will be wrath and judgment poured out on some people, namely those people who persistently live with no regard for Him whatsoever. But there's something else you've got to notice here. You've got God's wrath being poured out on the Babylonians through difficulty, through suffering, and through pain. All of these things are going to come to the Babylonians because of their disobedience. But at the same time, difficulty, suffering, and pain are also going to be experienced by God's chosen people as well. But it's for a completely different reason and for a completely different purpose. The purpose for Judah, the purpose for God's people is discipline. The purpose on the Babylonians is wrath, it's judgment, it's different. Let me show you what I mean. Let's go to Hebrews 12 in the New Testament. Uh, I think you're probably going to see some parallels in Hebrews 12 to what's going on in Habakkuk 1 and 2. Here's what I mean by that. The church that is being written to here in Hebrews 
is being very much hard-pressed by people outside the church. There are non-believers who are persecuting, who are imprisoning, who are beating, who are creating havoc for this church in such a way the church are losing heart. So the writer of Hebrews is wanting to find some way to encourage them to keep on persevering. Here's what he says, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's saying, consider him, consider Jesus. Earlier on in the book, the writers reminded them that Jesus is well able to empathize with them, that anything they're experiencing, anything that they are walking through, Jesus himself experienced or walked through while he was on earth. I'll give you some examples. Earlier on, I spoke to those of you who have been betrayed by someone close to you. It stings, doesn't it? It's painful isn't it? You know who else was betrayed by those closest to him? Jesus. Remember, as he was wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, take this cup from me, facing the anguish, the horror of the cross. All of those closest to him ran off and deserted him. So when you're betrayed by others, and other people let you down, Jesus understands personally how you feel. Have you ever lost a loved one? Ever lost someone really close to you? The Bible tells us that when Jesus heard that his good friend Lazarus had died, Jesus wept. And so, in our loss, we know that Jesus personally feels or has felt what we're feeling. Jesus is able to empathize with us. We could go on and on. He was arrested, falsely accused, beaten, ultimately killed. And the writer of Hebrews is going, look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. You are not alone. You haven't been abandoned. Of course, sinners are pressing into you. Didn't Jesus say, if they persecuted him, surely you would be persecuted as well? And we really don't know the half of it. I mean, I feel a bit of a fraud standing here and talking about this in our culture. We're not really persecuted in this culture. No one here, I don't think, has been thrown into prison or beaten or killed for their faith. We're made fun of. That's nothing. I mean, what people think of you is nothing. What God thinks is really the only thing that matters. So look at verse 5. Verse 5 is where it begins to get really interesting. Uh, uh, The writer says this, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement, this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. I don't want you to miss this. 
This is incredibly important for you to grasp. Already, even as we're worshipping, God was preparing you for this message. He wants you to get this. Difficulties, suffering, and pain are used by God very often to discipline us because He loves us. I'll say that again. Difficulties, suffering, and pain are used by God to discipline us because He loves us. Now, in order for us to get this, we've got to talk a little more about discipline because I think most of us have a wrong view of what discipline is. I think most of us probably think of discipline as punishment for something we've done wrong. So discipline is, don't do that. I said, don't do that. Are you listening? Don't do that. That's it. Thwack! That's kind of discipline for most of us. But in reality, that isn't discipline at all. Discipline is very much a vision for the future that affects things today. So, for example, just to try and illustrate this, Helen, my wife and I, have a vision for our kids. And so, we are working hard today to get where we want them to be tomorrow. And so, we shape and we mould and we chisel away. And, yep, admittedly, there is the occasional thwack when necessary. Why? Because in all of it, we've got this vision We've got this vision of our kids loving God and operating well in this world and being generous and learning to be grateful for the life that in His grace God has granted them. And what the Bible just said is that God has this kind of a vision of you. God has this picture of you. God is bringing you to this place. So look what it is, verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as His children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it, sometimes many years later, not at the time, but we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? I mean, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. So, The discipline of God is ultimately for our good. He works all things together for His good. It's for our good and it leads to our holiness. And I love the next line because it's honest. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So, you've got this great text here where God is saying, 
I've got this picture. I've got this vision in my mind of you and what you're going to be. I'm turning you into this and to get there we're going to need to chisel some edges off. We're going to need to sand down some corners and I'm going to absolutely need to break a couple of things to get you there. Listen to me, ultimately it's for your good, it's for your holiness, it's for righteousness, grace and peace that I'm doing all of this. And the writer to the Hebrew says, this should encourage us. Let me show you this working itself out. I want to take you to one more passage. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, another profound text. This time it's the Apostle Paul speaking. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I'm going to stop there because I want you to notice Paul hasn't become conceited yet. So, whatever's about to happen to Paul isn't because he's done something wrong. It's not punitive. God isn't punishing Paul. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now, why is it so important to keep Paul from becoming conceited? Well, the Bible's very clear that the proud, the conceited, God knows from afar, from a distance, but the humble of spirit, those are the people he draws near to. And so, God loves Paul so much that he says, because I want you close to me, I'm going to give you a thorn in your flesh. Now, theologians much brighter than me freak out and try to guess what on earth this thorn really is. Maybe it was a physical ailment, Many people think it was some woman issue, I don't know why. Uh, Maybe it was a a person who followed him round causing problems Uh, and they're just trying to kind of guess what this might be. Now, I don't know how it showed itself but I, I've lost some people, come back, come back, but I know what it was because of the next line. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, follow this. It tells us a lot about the spiritual war that whether we like it or not, we are all caught up in. It's like the demonic realm is going, we've got to shut Paul down. I mean, look at him. He's casting out demons. He's telling people to get up and walk. And people are getting saved everywhere. But we've got to find some way to stop him. What are we going to do? And so this messenger from Satan, whatever it is, is sent to torment Paul. But effectively, all it does is increase Paul's love for God. It keeps him humble. It makes him more reliant on God. You see, even what's dark ends up working to advance God's purpose. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Paul says, three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, no, my grace is sufficient for you, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm telling you, if we could get this, it would change absolutely everything about how we look at life. Because very few people I know who are going through a difficult season are going, thank you for letting me go through this, because it highlights all of my weaknesses and draws me closer to Jesus. Would that I stayed in this place for the rest of my life. Instead, they're like, get me out from under this difficulty. Get me out from under this pain. Get me out from under this stress. Get me out from under this hardship. Get me out from under this calamity. Now please, don't hear me wrong. It is okay to pray for an end to it. I mean, Paul himself pleaded with God here on three separate occasions for him to take this problem away. It's okay to pray those prayers, but when there is no end in sight, and that can be the hardest place to be, can't it? Where there is no hope on the horizon, where it feels there is no way out, this will just keep going. When there is no end in sight, Paul comes to the place where he is able to say, no, I'm going to embrace this because it's helping me to really dial more into God. Because if I'm honest, when I get out from under this pain, this trouble, this stress, this strife, I know myself. I tend to concentrate on other things. I'll begin to care about other things. My focus will be away from God. So, although, if I'm speaking honestly, I'd, I'd rather be out from under this I'm content to stay here for as long as God wills. I'm content in the midst of loss and opposition and difficulty and pain. Why? Because when I am weak, then I'm strong. It's an unbelievable text. And listen, this is someone who knows A lot of us don't know this level of difficulty and suffering and opposition and pain. Paul knows. I mean, you want to talk about a bad day? He literally was shipwrecked. We sung earlier about being in the open sea. He really was for a night and a day in the open sea. Finally gets to land, gathers some people around, having kind of crawled onto shore, begins to preach, and while he's preaching, a deadly snake attacks him. I mean, if that's not a come on moment, I mean, what is? It's like, seriously, God, can't you see? I'm trying my best. I'm, I'm working for you here. As if that's not bad enough, he's stoned on multiple occasions. Now, I need to say, for those who are thinking, well, uh, see where some of your minds are going, maybe this is permission to kind of uh, meddle with drugs. Th- this is not that kind of a reference. He was literally stoned. Rocks huge boulders lobbed at him. He was pelted with rocks. Twice he was left for dead. He's constantly persecuted. He's robbed, ultimately imprisoned and killed. And Paul, in the middle of all of that, says, 
I've grown content in this type of pain because in it I'm forced to cling onto God. I'm trying to illustrate this with my own journey right now. As you're aware, uh, I've been struggling with a bad back uh, for a while. I actually prepared this message uh, nine or ten weeks ago and wasn't able to deliver it at the time and have had to kind of experience something of this message in my own life to test whether or not it's true. So maybe there's more integrity now in terms of bringing this message. Speaking honestly, it's been incredibly frustrating. There have been some miserable weeks. There have been some days where I've felt very down. And I'm grateful for it because it has dialed me into some things that I don't know I'd have dialed into otherwise. It really has woken me up to some things that I kind of knew, probably taught from the front here before, but wasn't personally really living in the good of. Like, here's what I know. My wife loves me. I have a great marriage. I love being at home. I love my kids. It hasn't always been easy. We have our moments, but I still love it. I love this church, that wishing to get all soppy on you. I love you. I love that God is doing so much amongst us. Uh, I love this city. I love where I live. I love my life. But here's the thing. When all is said and done, ultimately none of that matters. Because ultimately Helen can't save me. My kids can't save me. Taking care of myself physically can't save me. Even leading a church and doing loads of stuff for God can't save me. When everything else is stripped away, really, I've only got one hope, and that's Jesus. And what a period of chronic pain does is it drives that hope deep down and makes me almost daily have to go, I'd better have my hope there. I'd better have my hope there. I'd better have my hope in Him because I know I'd better not have it in Helen. Better not have it in my kids. I'd better not have my hope on this church. I'd better not have my hope rooted in my money or in my house or in my health or in my job. I'd better not have it in doing ministry. I better have it in Him. I better have it in Jesus. And although this is personal to me, I really believe it's absolutely true about you. That's why we talk about these things. It's not particularly pleasant at times. The passage we've been in today, I mean, it's not really a laugh a minute. It's not all that easy, but we talk about these things. Like, you know, you're going to die, right? And everyone knows that somewhere, even in this city today, someone is going to die. No one thinks it's them. Everyone knows that people are going to get diagnosed with cancer this week. No one thinks it's them. Everyone knows that there will be loss this week. No one thinks it's going to happen to them. It's like we float high above everything and go, it's not us. It's not going to happen to me. It's other people. What I'm trying to tell you is that your day is coming. At some point in your life, you will suffer loss or pain 
or sickness, ultimately death. So you see, a right understanding of discipline versus wrath and judgment is vitally important for all of us. It lets us see that if we know and love God when we go through these things, it's not because God is angry with us and is judging us and is punishing us. It also helps us tap into the idea that God's love and mercy are still being demonstrated to us even in the midst of difficulty. I mean, think about it. What would be more cruel of God? What would be more cruel of God? Because if I had to write the script for my life, it would kind of rain 50-pound notes at my house, and my kids would be obedient the whole time, and Helen would do absolutely everything I say. Now, if God gave me that script, but didn't give me himself, isn't he cruel? If God gave me long life, a beautiful wife, great kids, tons of cash, fame, friends, and joy, but he doesn't give me himself, isn't he cruel? And if he gives me nothing but blood, sweat, and tears my whole life here, but I have him, hasn't he been merciful? I think if we could just get past our wish list of how we'd really like things to play out, hasn't he been merciful if he just gives us himself? The answer is yes. And that's why throughout the scriptures, throughout history, people who experience these unreal tragedies are still able to rejoice even in the midst of them. Now again, please, don't hear me wrong. In no way am I trying to be insensitive or blasé about the very real trials that you may currently be going through. I'm not trying to go, oh, back pain, oh, cancer, oh, devastation, thank you, Lord. don't want to be unreal. But I do want to urge you, in the midst of it, to press in to pray, to find God's mercy to you in the midst of what you're going through. That through the tears and through the confusion and through the pain, you would find that bedrock, that foundation of the grace and mercy of God made evident in Jesus Christ. So here's the question you have to answer. Here's the question as we wrap up. This world holds many troubles. If you don't know that, you probably haven't lived long enough. This world holds many troubles. Loss happens. Loneliness occurs. Depression creeps in. Despair happens. People die. Disease is real. You lose your job. Your sins catch up with you. You can't escape the implications of them. On and on and on I could go. The question you've got to answer is this. Are you under wrath or are you under mercy? Are you under wrath 
or are you under discipline? And how you answer that question comes back to what you do with Jesus Christ, because that cup of God's wrath, that cup of God's judgment that we read about in Habakkuk will surely come around to you. Now, here's what I know. Personally, I deserve that cup. I deserve it. I don't know you. I know personally speaking, if I'm being honest, I deserve it. There are times in my life I've rebelled, I've belittled, I've mocked, I've run my own way. I deserve that cup, 100%. I know I deserve it. But here's the thing. When it's time for that cup to be poured on me, it's going to be empty. You know why it's empty? Because it was already poured out. It was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And so when God the Father comes to pour that cup of wrath and judgment on me, he will find it empty. And his son will be sitting next to him going, no, he's perfect. No, he's spotless. No, he's holy. He's blameless. He's ours. He belongs to us. And not only does Jesus absorb the wrath that God had for me in my rebellion, but then he speaks of my righteousness through himself to the Father. No, he's righteous. He's ours. I have purchased him for you. And so, now, regardless of what befalls my life, it's God's mercy not his wrath. I'm never under the punitive punishment of God Almighty. Instead, I'm under his merciful hand, admittedly, as he chisels away at me, making me more and more and more like his son for the good of my eternal soul and the glory of his wonderful name. And if you could only put on these lenses If you could just see it this way, if you could only get this perspective, it makes the day of trouble much more easy to stand in. But if you can't put on these lenses, if you can't focus on this, if you can't get this perspective, then you're likely to try another path. Like to try the path of penance, of punishing yourself, of beating yourself up to try to earn forgiveness, of thinking all the time that because this has gone wrong, then God's judging you. And nothing's more exhausting than walking that path. It leaves you feeling rubbish. It leaves you feeling condemned the whole time. So I'm pleading with you here. Please don't trade God's grace and mercy for you for acts of penance you have no righteousness, you have no right standing with God of your own. You have only the righteousness given to you as a free gift in Jesus Christ. You don't have to sit under God's wrath. If that's where you feel you are right now, it's a decision that you are making because Christ has paid the bill. You only need to get under that, to trust in it, to live every day in the good of it, begin to follow and serve and submit to him as he has revealed himself to us in scriptures like the ones we've been looking at today. I want to invite you to stand.